0: You guys ready to go? Yes. Are we ready back there? Are we all good? Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For June 30th, 2022, it's the Grab at the Steering Wheel edition. For the first time... For the first time since the pandemic, the Gapfest is live in person. We're at Sixth and I Historic Synagogue in downtown Washington, D.C., and it is a joy, it is a joy to be here. They, they say that Washington is Hollywood for ugly people, but it is not true of this crowd. You're beautiful, not just because of those masks. And it's only fitting that we're all here on Justice Stephen Breyer's last night on the court. As you may have heard, he sent a letter to President Biden today announcing that his resignation takes effect at noon tomorrow, and I am taking credit. (laughs) I'm David Plotz of CityCast. On my far left, a journalist as wise as he is kind, as intelligent as he is blonde, from CBS Sunday morning, President Chester Arthur's favorite reporter, but the scourge of Warren Harding, it's John Dickerson. And on my near left, the legal journalist so brilliant that Supreme Court justices should be calling her for advice, obviously. New Haven and the New York Times' finest, the fearless, tireless, never ever speechless, Emily Bazelon. On today's GabFest, it's a slow news week. We don't have much to talk about. Will Cassidy Hutchinson's ketchup-strewn, expletive-reprising, metal-detector-busting testimony finally break the cult of Trump? Then the Supreme Court ends the right to abortion. What will the consequence for American lives and American politics be from the decision? Then is the legitimacy of the court itself at risk? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. So there were so many memorable lines from Cassidy Hutchinson's star appearance at the January 6th committee this week, the young, incredibly poised staffer to former chief of staff Mark Mark Meadows, who was present during the run-up to January 6th and on the day itself. I don't effing, sorry, I was going to say fucking, but she didn't say fucking. I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me, I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable. You heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. And of course, grab at the steering wheel. So John, it was gripping. What was important about Hutchinson's testimony?
1: First, what was important was who was doing the testifying. So if the gate, if the chief of staff is known as the gatekeeper to the president, uh, she was the gatekeeper's gatekeeper. It's like being in air traffic control. Now I've got gatekeepers in air traffic control. Can we get a third travel <laughs> metaphor? <laughs> it's like being on a scooter when you're... Um, Anyway, you see the entire White House, right? So you see the frantic lawyer Pat Cipollone, who you quoted, running down the hallway trying to get somebody to do something about the fact that they're rioting and hanging and calling for Mike Pence's hanging. Then she's there, fielding phone calls from the majority leader of the Senate, I mean of the House. Um, She's at the center of it all, which means she has standing to make the claims she can, and also she had a pretty good memory. Um, She took notes. Um, and then what was most important about what she said was the fact that Donald Trump apparently knew that there were AR-15s and pistols in the crowd, and knew that at 10 a.m. on the 6th, morning of the 6th, and was whipping up the crowd even more, asking, them, asking the Secret Service to take down the magnetometers, which screen out weapons to allow them to come in. He was whipping up the crowd to go to the Capitol. He knew they were armed. Also, there's a tighter connection, perhaps, between the plotters and the Proud Boys and the White House. Um, So those are the two most damning developments. And we can get into the texture of what she delivered, because this was the inside picture. We've seen the outside video. This was video from her memory, which painted quite a picture of, of an extraordinary White House of chaos.
2: I just want to add one thing, which is the conduct during the... So the rioting is starting, people are assaulting the Capitol, and... Meadows and Cipollone are talking about how Trump, in front of Hutchinson, talking about how Trump has no interest in stopping it, doesn't care what people are chanting about hanging the vice president.
1: And Meadows was barely talking at all. I mean, the most damning thing is her descriptions repeatedly of him just doom scrolling. The person whose job it is to get up and do something was just prisoner of his lounger just wilting in the face of his boss and the complexity of the situation. It was, in her description, if there is, you know, the man meets the moment, the man did not meet the moment in her description.
2: One more thing is just, here's this young woman testifying with real dramatic flair. I mean, she, like, really knew when to pause for a fact, right? It was kind of amazing. It was like, and I don't mean this in a cynical way, And then you realize that these older men she's talking about are refusing to appear before the committee and that she is showing this patriotism, um, putting country first, that other people who are her superiors are not doing.
0: From a legal perspective, Emily, was there anything that Hutchinson said that you think fundamentally changes the possibility of uh, Trump being charged criminally or anyone else being charged criminally in this?
2: Yeah, I did actually think that it mattered. I mean, I've been sort of really nervous, and I remain nervous about the political consequences and the just sort of amount of entanglement that a Trump prosecution means for the country because we will have to... It will just beset us, and I wonder about that. However, I did think it was like you could see the... um, Locks starting to tighten on former President Trump because of this firsthand testimony that he was so aware of the violence.
0: What are the the elements that need to be proved criminally, or or to, to bring a charge?
2: Well, you know, the the previous charges we've been talking about have been obstructing a proceeding and defrauding the United States, and so I think that some of this testimony was relevant to those charges, mostly getting over this problem of what was Trump's intent. Did he know that crowd was going to try to stop the vote, to try to disrupt the proceedings? The testimony about Pence is relevant to that, and also to people being armed. Then there's this sort of separate charge, which I still think is less likely, but of directly inciting to violence. And, you know, suddenly that seemed possible. That's a really high bar. I bet the prosecutors are the least interested in that charge, but there was a good piece by David French where he talked about, okay, you need, the standard is inciting to imminent lawless action, and then you need to show intentionality and likelihood and imminence. So imminence absolutely is there, likelihood started to see, like, that Trump would have known it was likely. It seems like now that we know that he knew everyone was armed. Yeah. And intentionality seemed more plausible, too. Now, she's just one witness, and there were other people there. Um, but, yeah.
1: We should add to, into your, to your first question. I mean, she has already testified that Trump knew the rioting had started, and then at 224 sent out that text putting the target back on Mike Pence's back. So that's another important thing. She reiterated that testimony. But also then that, that when uh, Trump knew about the hang Mike Pence, I mean, that's extraordinary. That's the most, when you think of just sheer ounce-for-ounce ounce cruelty, that's the most extraordinary thing that she testified.
2: And also, without the legal definition, just if, conceptually speaking, it feels like we are talking about treason. We are talking about preventing the country from having an orderly transfer of power and being willing to threaten, to goad people, or at least not stop them from threatening the life of a vice president. Like, right. that's pretty basic. So
0: we have seen so many of these moments during the Trump pre-presidency and presidency and post-presidency where it seems like surely that's it, you know, surely he's done, and then five minutes later there's a new outrage, everything's forgotten, and this is because Republican-based voters and the, and the officials who are in their thrall, uh, just won't have it. Well, the the officials won't have it because they want the approval of the base voters, and the base voters continue to hang to Trump. Is there any reason, John, you think that this is different and that we won't be saying Cassidy who in, like, two weeks?
1: It can make no difference, and we can still be saying Cassidy Hutchinson for the rest of time. I mean, I think it was dramatic uh, and historic on its own terms, but as an electoral matter... um, all of the conditions that you talked about are all still there. I, I think marginally, probably, if somebody's thinking Trump twenty-four or Ron DeSantis, they might, you know, they might find a way to collectively shuffle over to DeSantis, and then once you do that, it's the precondition to then shuffle to whatever other candidates come. But his power in the party uh, is still quite strong, not just as a kind of "I'm Donald Trump and I put my finger on you and you're blessed," but but it is a you kind of either have to say that the election was stolen in 2020 or play footsie with the idea... To really be a person who's going to rise in the party the way it is right now, and that hasn't changed.
2: I mean, don't we still have the problem that she, as powerful as she is, is one person coming forward and still doesn't feel... And, and there have been other people who testified from the White House, lawyers, We've, but there isn't a phalanx of former White House officials coming forward together, and I feel like that's the way to break his hold, and we're still not there yet.
1: Well, unless her testimony... Get some people to start. I yes. mean, um, certainly, Liz Cheney has been banging on on Cipollone to try and get him to testify, and I don't know if this uh, starts that or not.
0: Do it, does it feel to you? I, I guess I do. I mean, I I have that same sense. Oh, I've seen this movie twelve times before. I've seen it so many times. It's all, every time you get you get your mind thinking, although this is finally Trump being washed out, but that this time there is this possibility of a soft exit for Trump voters, that there is, DeSantis represents this this capacity of of movement for them, which doesn't require them to disavow. I don't think we're ever going to get people renouncing their firmly held beliefs. Um, it's really psychically painful for people to renounce beliefs, but like, is there an accumulation of small things that allows people to kind of say, oh... You know, DeSantis seems like a really strong candidate. Let me let's just go there, and that, that and that so that you don't actually purge the Trumpism from the party, but you purge the Trump from the I think, party.
1: I think that's right, and I think also, to, you know, Newt Gingrich. I've rolled this quote out before, but why not do it again? would say about, about Trump, he's not a conservative, but he's the best anti-liberal we've ever had. DeSantis is a big, strong anti-liberal too. Um, and so to the extent that he mimics that, if we have politics that are defined by negative partisanship, by your ability to sandblast the other side, he's quite talented in that, in the sense that that talent is rewarded within his party. I mean, it's, it's not a talent in the sense that you want a lot of this in your politics, but, but he has the skills that are rewarded in that party in that way.
2: But, John, can that soft exit happen if Trump does not step aside? In other words, does he have... Someone has to show him the door, but then doesn't he have to exit in order for...
1: (laughs) Yes, although...
0: yeah, He could just, like, throw a plate at it. Yeah. (laughs) Spray it with ketchup.
1: Um, It's a really interesting question. Um, I think his... It's hard to predict his behavior. Um... Yes and no. Uh, but I think you can imagine a, a situation where he reads the room, because he's quite good at reading his own room. Um, and if he's not getting the feedback that fed him before, you could imagine him finding a way to to find an exit.
0: I was struck by there was some, in some of our reading, there was this Republican pollster. This may all be confected bullshit, honestly. But Republican pollster who was saying that in her last two the last two uh, 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 focus, groups? focus groups she'd run, None of the Republicans in those focus groups wanted Trump to run again, that that was that they all just felt like he didn't need to run. They weren't disavowing Trump. They weren't away from Trump. They just didn't want him to run again. And, and I, it would be a small mercy, I think, for the country, at least if we were done with Trump, even if we you know, were not done with the baleful forces that he represents. But it would be a mercy.
2: I mean, he also, he doesn't want to be president again, right? Like, I don't think so. It's it's whether that he it's can...
1: vindication of the last time around.
2: Well, right. I mean, that's different from actually wanting to do the job of president. Well, he
1: didn't want to do it the first time around. <laughs> right. So
2: maybe he's had enough of yeah.
1: I mean, I, that's not just being flip. I, he considered the job as a kind of prize that once you get it, you put it on the shelf, and then it all kind of.
2: So maybe he can find a way to think about this that he can be like the kind of mafia don from in the. Yeah, from afar yeah, yeah. blessing whoever comes next
0: so Emily just just quickly on a couple of legal things to wrap this up so officials sees John Eastman and Jeff Clark's phones this week suggesting at least there's a criminal investigation of those two paragons of the legal profession and I was just thinking wouldn't it be amazing if there was like if they had a law firm and Giuliani and
2: <laughs>
0: and Sidney Powell were in it like what that law firm would be like but, um,
2: I want to take my business there. Yeah, yeah. But
0: do you, does it feel to you, and I, I, obviously you don't have insider information, but does it feel to you like there is, we've been following the House action, that's not criminal prosecution, there's so many lawyers out here who are just like, plus doesn't know what he's talking about, um, but do you feel that there is, There, you, you sense that there is criminal prosecution activity ginning up in the, in the corridors of... DC grand juries and so forth.
2: Well, there's definitely an investigation shining up. Time out. Could they really still have incriminating evidence on their phones? I know. Like, I was oh wondering God, that. They well, those phones, like,
0: like what's on the phone?
2: Right. I, I well, know.
1: but here's the thing that's interesting to me, and it came through in her testimony, which is, so one of Trump's friends said when he first came to office, he said what he likes to do is throw a hand grenade, and then when it blows up, he runs into the room and manages the. Chaos.
0: I thought he likes to throw plates.
1: Um, and um. And so he's good in that. Most people are freaked out by chaos. And so they may not, you know, unless you're doing crime all the time, you may not remember to delete your texts. I mean, look at some of the stuff they've, they were doing and saying, you know, Eastman was on the phone after the riot saying, well, you know, I think we found some ballots in Pennsylvania in a, in a Dairy Queen. And, uh <laughs> He was. So, so if you are undeterred by a riot and you're still banging on the door, maybe you're not practicing Leading. super good hygiene on your iPhone.
2: I guess that's possible. Uh, you're right. I you didn't... should
1: see his apps haven't been updated since.
2: Well, also, he's but, not a digital native. It's, so the, it's
1: the iPhone was uh, released, announced today, whatever year it was, in 1901, I think. Um <laughs> This is the anniversary of the iPhone. Anyway, random Okay, point. there you go. Um,
2: it, but can I ask is, you a
0: question? Just, what is John doing? <laughs> Where is he? Gone. Where did he
1: go?
2: Bringing up historical this facts. This is the first talk. time I've
1: confused you. Um, <laughs> can I ask you a question? Eastman was... Um, The warrant was, or he's being investigated by the inspector general in the Justice Department. Do you assume that that's an investigation of Clark that he's pulled into? Why would it be the IG of the Justice Department? Well, it makes
2: sense that the inspector general of the Justice Department would be investigating a former Justice Department official, yes, because those are internal investigations, um... But you could also imagine there are other reasons to investigate John Eastman. He had his finger in a lot of pie.
1: But I mean, would the IG be investigated? Because he never worked for the Justice Department.
2: Right. But I guess in conjunction with investigating Clark, maybe, though, they're doing something else. I mean, this is we...
0: Real DC fan service. John, last question here. What did you make of the amazing detail that Cassidy Hutchinson reported sec- secondhand, or maybe even third-hand that President Trump tried to override his Secret Service agents, take control of a presidential vehicle, and go to the Capitol? Why,
1: well, David, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, so I, I've been thinking when, when they laid out what they had in the committee, first of all, don't think of it as January 6th, even though this was Tight detail of what happened on that day. Think of it as 78 days between when Trump knew he lost the election and Biden was sworn in. And over those 78 days, he was, pardon for the reuse of the metaphor, like a robber breaking into a house. First, he tried the door. That was the state officials. Then he tried the window. That was going after Mike Pence. Then he tried the upstairs window. That was trying to whip up the crowd. Then he tried the mail slot. Then he tried the dog door. So it turns out he also tried the chimney, and he did this weird thing with the chimney, which is what the steering wheel is. (laughs) Which is to say, it's really dramatic and cinematic, and if you were doing the movie, it would have a moment, but it is not the whole bundle. The bundle is the entire attempt to break in, the multiple efforts, the fact that he was even up at the chimney, so... If he didn't do the weird thing with the chimney, he was literally trying every door in the house to overthrow a free election. That's bigger than whatever may or may not happen with the recollections about going after the steering wheel or the throat of his lead Secret Service agent.
2: Right. At the same time, when you have a star witness, if someone oh. can poke holes in part of her testimony and it sounds like they're Secret Service agents who are willing to say that he did not try to grab the steering wheel, like that's not great. Right. I mean, she wasn't there for this part. The story could have gotten exaggerated. Right. But I did have a moment of thinking, like, I know it's super dramatic, but you're right. It's basically a sideline. You can cut it out of the story and the rest of the story holds up. And so I a little bit winced. I started worrying about that.
0: Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest every week. This week's bonus segment is going to be questions from the audience here at our live show in DC. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money If you're a decision-maker, adding RAMP could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now, get $250 when you join RAMP for free. Just go to RAMP.com slash easy. RAMP.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
0: We're less than a week past the Supreme Court's decision to wipe out the federal right to abortion and throw it back to the states since the Dobbs decision we've seen... Celebration. We've seen protests. We've seen extraordinary turmoil at the state level as blue states work to enshrine abortion rights and red states apply trigger laws or contemplate other new constraints on abortion. So this was a day that most of us have known was coming since the draft opinion leaked months ago, but it was shocking nonetheless. Nonetheless, Emily, we have not done, uh, because this decision came out after we taped last week, we haven't done the kind of classic gab fest thing which is what did justice alito say in his opinion how was his legal reasoning
2: justice alito's ended uh the constitutional right to abortion he overturned the conservative majority overturned roe versus wade really very much along the lines of his leaked opinion from february it was kind of amazingly similar all the things that i thought oh well, maybe he'll cut that out no no still there um And this is just a huge sea change in American law, and it's going to affect the lives of many, many people, especially women across the country, as we watch states ban or severely restrict abortion. And then we watch the consequences of that, which is going to mean at least three things. It's going to mean some forced pregnancies. It's going to mean women traveling far distances, Um, and it's going to mean— figuring out how to thread the needle of prescribing abortion pills so that women in states that are hostile to abortion can get their hands on them.
1: Average travel distance, 500 miles.
2: Right. So interestingly, the research that exists from Texas from when they started shutting down clinics several years ago suggests that once you get to 250 miles... You, that is like sort of where the reduction tops out. So in other words, people who drive 250 miles drive 500 miles. They don't fly very much. Um, at least poor people who are the most affected by the ruling. And then there are all these logistics to figure out, you know, support, who's taking care of your kids, where do you stay? I mean, actually, I wonder if gas prices are actually going to really have an impact here because it's going to be much more expensive than when this research was done to drive long distances. Um, And then, you know, these sort of weird questions of federalism, like... Are we going to have many, many abortion clinics in Illinois, in New Mexico, in um, Colorado? Does Kansas stay open? There's an amendment on the state ballot to end the the Kansas Supreme Court's decision saying that there is a constitutional right under state law in Kansas that. There are just all these like both geographic and legal questions.
1: In the Kansas, the governor of Kansas is a Democrat for the moment, so right, that'll be that'll matter. You know, if people are thinking about where they can spend their energy, time, and money who support abortion rights, Kansas, Pennsylvania are probably a good places to do that. So,
0: Emily, one key battleground is obviously going to be medication abortion, which is already, I think, 54% of abortions yep. in the U.S. are medication abortions, and it's undoubtedly, undoubtedly going to be the dominant way that women in states that ban abortion are going to seek to end their pregnancies. So... What is the legal status of medication abortion for if you live in a state that bans abortion, your capacity to to get that medicine through the mail? Obviously you can't get it from a doctor in your state, but what's your what's the legal issue with you getting it in the mail?
2: So there are only 3 states that so far ban receiving the abor- receiving the abortion pills by mail which is different from providers being allowed to send them right they're, so if you're the the patient receiving them through the mail there it's most of the country that remains legal however there are 19 states that already ban telemedicine Medication abortions, ban or severely restrict, and so that means that creates these hurdles, right? You have to leave your state, go to a border state in order to have the telehealth appointment that then would lead you to receive the pills. Um, There obviously are going to there's basically the conflict that's going to happen next. Assuming let's set aside the Biden administration and what they can do. Just park that for a minute. The conflict is between how much the states are willing to ratchet up enforcement. Are they willing to prosecute people for taking the pills? Are they willing to surveil people? Are they willing to open mail? Are they allowed to open mail? Well, I mean, if they make it, I mean, you can, if someone is trying to do a cocaine prosecution, like, sure. But
0: state officials can open
2: yeah, if Federal mail. a oh, criminal all right. conspiracy, sure. Would
0: you get a blanket warrant or would you
1: need an individual warrant each time you wanted to open the mail?
2: I think you would need an individual warrant to open the mail, yeah, for an individual person, right? So you have this kind of pressure of state enforcement and then you have this question of what are the various end runs people are going to make around all of these legal barriers? How good do people get at it? Does the information get out, right? So right now there's an organization in that's run out of the Netherlands called Aid Access, Um, they are mailing across these criminal, these state ban lines. They're mailing into the states. And then there are other sort of workarounds with like mail forwarding, these things you can do to get the pills.
0: Do you think that states are, are going to be prosecuting people who cross state lines to get abortions? Do you think that is going to happen? Or they're going to be prosecuting, if you're a doctor in Connecticut that's providing abortions to women who've flown in from Texas, is Texas going to arrest you when you fly through DFW airport?
2: For performing the abortion? Yeah. So Connecticut and New York so far have passed laws that protect abortion providers from prosecution as long as the abortion takes place in Connecticut or New York, according to the laws of Connecticut and New York. So many other haven states for abortion could pass laws like that. And then you have a giant legal conflict.
0: John, what do you anticipate the political impacts of this are going to be? Obviously, Democrats face a really bad landscape in November. Do you think this fundamentally changes anything?
1: I don't know. I mean, so I know a couple of things. People who have seen this decision coming and know how to send money and attention and energy are now paying a lot of attention to things like the governor's race in Pennsylvania which is now going to you know if the democrat wins abortion laws will roughly stay the same if he loses then the then the republican who's running wants a full abortion ban so that's a targeted specific that and then we talked about Kansas as well so in states like that in local races You've you got to fix on it. In the, in the House races in the 81 or so that are on the map, um, You know the question is, obviously we've seen an uptick in enthusiasm among Democratic voters, but are they enthusiastic just in places where they were always going to vote for the Democrats in anyway? They need to be enthusiastic. New people need to be enthusiastic in places where it will matter, and that we don't know yet. We know that in the CBS poll basically 67% of women said this was a bad decision. Um, Three to one said uh, it's going to make life worse for women. You do not want to be on the wrong end of those numbers. But are they going to activate, if you're a Republican, you don't want to be on the wrong end of those numbers. And you see a lot of Republican candidates in close races staying away from this issue. Um, So they're not crowing about it. Um, Laxalt, the Senate candidate for the Republicans in um, Nevada, is an election denier, so he's okay with that. But on this issue, he's because uh, in Nevada, I believe it's the case that, you, that abortion is legal in Nevada. He's like, nothing's going to change. Let's talk about inflation. I mean, that's uh, that's amazing, um, and it gives you some sense of the political damage in a, in a political um, radioactivity of this in a, in a close race. So, um, the question is, there is clearly enthusiasm. Does it does it take place in the places it has to to affect those uh, House and Senate races?
0: Whenever I hear things like this, I'm always reminded of the greatest line in political history from Barney Frank, which was that Republicans believe life begins at conception and ends at birth. But um, the states with um, the states the states that have the strictest abortion laws tend to also be the states that have the lowest social welfare spending. Do you think there's any possibility, Emily, that that this sort of leads to an upsurge in in uh, welcoming and and, uh, funding for things that help women and children in states that have historically not done that so much?
4: No.
2: (laughs) And I I mean, look, like, I think, you know, Ross is speaking in good faith. He's been talking about increasing social welfare spending for a long time. And there are, like, a few people, like Mitt Romney, who, although he wants to impose lots of work requirements, um, are at least sort of on board. But it is just not the priority. First of all, it's antithetical to a lot of how Republicans actually behave in office. But also, I was reading what the leading abortion-opposing groups were saying, and they said about this whole idea, oh, that's a later stage That's not what we, that's not our priority, I think right it's
0: now. nine months from now, technically. Yeah. <laughs> exactly nine months from and now. And when
2: you look well, at what pregnancy resource centers, which, you know, are sort of set up often to kind of um, mimic what abortion clinics do and they provide ultrasounds, they their support for women who decide to have babies is very time-limited and very, it's often just about diapers.
1: Right. I mean, you could imagine if if Ross were right, you could imagine all these trigger laws that went into place, would have a sidecar that was maybe even bigger than the anti-abortion underlying legislation that would say universal health care, free education, free daycare. If or or whatever or whatever the conservative equivalent is when Ross wrote the, wrote his book about this however several many years ago make that the sidecar you it doesn't have to be liberal policies but some set of policies that recognize that the new humans that are coming into the world need things need things and are and are are going to be in many cases in in homes where they're going to need even more things than
2: Right. I'll no, adopt i adopt mean, your baby. Right. You know, this is also something when people compare the United States to Europe that drives me completely crazy because the Europeans have health insurance, they have all this access to contraception, they have access to first trimester abortion, they have all these protections in place so that, like, yes, the whole picture looks different there because they're thinking of healthcare and reproductive health in this just sort of spectrum way that we don't.
0: What did you make of Thomas's concurring opinion which seems to put marriage equality, and the right to contraception at risk?
2: I'm really excited about that idea. No. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, look. So, first of all, I think this is, like, do, Clarence Thomas has been saying this about what was unfortunately called substantive due process, like the worst legal term ever for a liberty interest in the 14th Amendment um, that allows the Constitution to adapt to our changing times. He's been... He's been at war with substantive due process for a long time, so it made sense. It was really interesting that nobody joined him among the Conservatives. On the other hand, of course they didn't. Nobody else wants to pick this bigger fight right now. It doesn't really mean anything. There could be more votes. I think that this is where the response of the country matters enormously. You know, there is a kind of... Pretend rhetoric and Alito's opinion. We don't care about public opinion. That's just not the case over the course of history. The Supreme Court does in some ways respond indirectly. If there is political upheaval over Dobbs, that is going to make it harder for them to take these other steps.
1: We've talked about this before, that if something's taken away from you, you're more energized than if you're given things as a voter. So that's one thing that'll be really interesting to watch, whether that energizes voters for a long time. Biden's been trying to make this election a choice and not a referendum on him. So to the extent that somebody in the Democratic Party has the rhetorical ability and the party we're to stick with it to make a larger claim about abortion, but within the context of a series of things that you could make a pretty easy argument about the opposing party, this opens the door to that makes it a case about who gets to make the decision, not about abortion, but just who gets to choose for women in the handling of their personal decisions. Somebody, if they could art- articulate that, might have and it would be interesting to see if that has political um, salience. And it's a reminder to Democrats why voting matters. So that's been something Democrats have been having issues with. So it'll be fascinating to see if anybody can string those together because it would seem like you would have the, the pieces there for a powerful piece of political rhetoric.
0: When people, and by people I mean mostly liberals, uh, talk about the growing illegitimacy of the Supreme Court, what do they mean?
2: They mean that the Supreme Court is really um, moving to the right in a way that in the context of abortion and um, I, I think also the gun decision last week, um, I'm not as sure about the... For the prayer, and um, school funding decisions is really out of step with American public opinion. And, you know, we've had this happen in American history a few times before in the 1850s, in the 1930s. Both times there were real, um, well, in the 1850s, Congress changed the number of Supreme Court justices three times in the, actually, 1850s and 60s. And in the 1930s, of course, FDR threatened that, and then the court retreated. And so... This is this kind of push-and-pull dynamic that um, liberals are hoping to invoke this time, too, that you have a Supreme Court, that its prov- public approval ratings become so low that the other branches of government are willing to step in and really change the way that it operates. Now, of course, that means that they are actually elected by <laughs> the liberals who are complaining about the court. So far, we don't have a lot of um evidence that that's going to continue into the next years in which this would so far this is yeah, actually not place. likely to
1: be brought up by majority leader mitch mcconnell
2: probably not right and remember i mean president biden's supreme court commission offered sort of sketched out possibilities but didn't make any recommendations
1: first of all you have a republican senator susan collins saying that kavanaugh misled her now whether she was actually misled or not to Have a senator? Do you
0: believe that she? Do you I, believe her?
1: That's uh, well. Who knows? Come on. It anyway, it doesn't matter for the purposes of the point I'm making, which is that some number of people who might be who might just think, "Oh wow, you know, she he misled her." So it's pretty extraordinary to have a a, a senator say that uh, from this you know same ideological camp say that somebody misled them. So that's one thing that I think undermines legitimacy. Clarence Thomas's wife being in constant contact with the White House about about going around an election, um, if he cared about the legitimacy of the court, presumably, if if that was important in terms of keeping that pristine, presumably he would um, have recused himself or said something or done something to keep that cleaner. And finally, the idea of precedent, isn't that supposed to be that the court never moves too fast? Now that's gone out the window, so it suggests the court is more political in its movements, which which would seem to reduce its legitimacy.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that especially from the point of view of liberals and Democrats, all those things really resonate. The question is whether it goes beyond that, because you can make an argument that, you know, Roe was the highly political move, and this was just sort of canceling it out, and I think a lot of conservatives who oppose abortion feel that way about it.
1: Here's my question about that. Political in the sense that it had political ramifications, but did you have a court then, and maybe you had it de facto, but I mean, since... When I think when you think about Souter and you think about O'Connor, those are considered mistakes in the Republican Party because and they yet. were, and and so the Republican project has been to make sure that there is not going to be anybody who wobbles, which is I think different than the way the court was made up that made the original Roe decision, and therefore. Locks in politics in a way that's different, even though they are even though they are political decisions.
2: Oh, I think that's absolutely true. When you look at the polls, both about just the court's approval rating in general, but then this question of whether people think that the justices are political hacks—like, absolutely, those numbers are going up, and it becomes harder and harder to deny what's happening right in front of us. However, there is still a gap between all of that public awareness and dissatisfaction, and actually adding to the number of justices or stripping them of being able to well, review certain kinds of cases that's like a big step that congress has to take right congress-
0: but so, so it's the intersection of the kind of anti-anti-democratic anti-majoritarian aspects of the supreme court runs into the anti-majoritarianism of the congress itself which is and incapable so of so making it's, it's exactly. incapable right
2: yes That's the fear, right? That you have this court. I mean, we had another decision this week in which the court said that Louisiana does not have to add a second more um, safe seat for African-American voters, right? They went back to the original map, which was more gerrymandered, which will provide, you know, less ability to elect the candidate of your choice for black and Hispanic voters. Like, that's the court sort of directly affecting the composition of the body that could then have some kind of impact on how it operates.
0: What do you think, John, is there any plausible long game for liberals along the lines of what conservatives and Mitch McConnell did with the Federalist Society to change the composition of the court. And obviously, they got a huge amount of luck. I mean, like had things just fallen slightly differently, they, this doesn't happen. But it, was, it did have a massive long-term strategy.
1: But it. I wonder if the luck favors the prepared. I mean, so they, for 50 years- Chance been...
0: favors the prepared mind. Yeah, exactly. Um, I just said that. I, I know you that. Did. I well, know that's
1: it good.
2: Sounded like some quote, and you were gonna like tell us. It is. It is.
0: Blaise Pascal. I think. Right, there we go. Is it Pascal? Okay. Anyone know?
2: Pas- oh, Louis Pasteur. Pas- Pasteur.
0: Louis Pasteur. Oh, there we go. Thank you. P A S French something. Did you know the iPhone? Um, <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, anyway, the um, you were you were that talking about those think. interesting moments. I mean, one of them is. Mitch McConnell and candidate Donald Trump both agreed on nothing. And the night that it was announced that um, Justice Scalia had died, each of them independently said, "Deny Obama his pick." And Trump said, "I'm going to. I'm going to." And he started. He was naming judges. They did that independently because they had been conditioned by a mindset over fifty years of work on this. So. That was a random occurrence but the fact that everybody knew exactly what to do is a result of, of this what you're asking can liberals do they have is, to there is there a
0: project is there is there a comparable liberal project I mean there there could be you just have to stick with it for 50 years but is it the Supreme Court or is it
2: something else? I think that it's, well, I mean, honestly, I think it's the democracy right now. Because, in fact, the you could argue that there was an over-reliance on the kind of happenstance that the Supreme Court remained more centrist, I'm not really going to say liberal, than it should have because of O'Connor and Souter and Kennedy and a couple other folks earlier on. Right. And that actually what's really important is to persuade people um, and get policies in place through the democratic process because they're more enduring. And, you know, same-sex marriage is the great example of this. Yes, we end up with Obergefell and a constitutional right, but it's built upon the foundations of legislative victories, ballot initiative victories, and state court, as well as federal court decisions.
1: The project probably has happened at the state's because Republicans are doing really well in the state houses, too, in terms right. of controlling the governorship and the legislatures. In a lot
2: of it's the a lot of hard local and regional work. Um, can I say one more thing about the court doctrinally, which, like, the actual... Yeah, so this has been driving me crazy. It's an erotic
0: um, word for this crowd, I doctrinally.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so one of the common themes in the last couple of weeks of these huge decisions has been the idea of the court saying that the Constitution, the court's interpretation of the rights in the Constitution is can only be based on history and tradition. So we see it in the gun cases, we see it with Dobbs, um, and we saw it with the religion cases. And that is a very constricted view of our Constitution, right? It means that you can only look to a time in which... Women weren't voting and had no effect on laws. Black people weren't voting and had no effect on laws. And you wind up, you know, looking back to British common law to people who believed as witch in witchcraft as great authorities. Um, Justice Thomas cited um, Justice Taney, or Tani, I think, oh, yeah. who wrote the Dred Scott yeah, decision. Yeah, yeah, no. You just end up in this universe in which it's like. Well, of course they, you know, were restricting the right to abortion. They also thought that women couldn't own property if they were married, had no control over their own sex life. You're just in this, it's, it's really... And it's
0: bad history, too. It's not even that they're, yes. they they cherry-pick the history, They
2: cherry-pick the history, too. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. I was really... Right. Justice Breyer tried to push back hard on that in the gun rights decision, and actually the the dissent does that in Dobbs, too, but they just don't have the votes. You get to cherry-pick the history if you have five votes.
1: Did the decision on the religion, on the kneeling case, uh, on the Kennedy versus... I can't remember the name of the school, where Sotomayor challenged Gorsuch's interpretations of the facts... Basically, was he praying and put alone? Photo and put in. the photo in. It was a good photo. Was that a result? So, the so photo. Gorsuch said that he was praying alone. Sotomayor just quietly put in, quietly praying alone. Sotomayor put the picture of him of the of the coach standing in the middle of all the players, um, not alone. So, is that new? Um, that's a fight over the facts. Usually, when you get to Supreme Court, shouldn't it be all figured out? And is that a new symbol of this? Um, you know, I mean, the fight is about the constitution, not about the facts as much. Is that right? A and B is this a sign of the new legitimacy crisis?
2: Uh, I think it is a sign of the new legitimacy crisis. There are examples of it coming up before of arguments over what the facts are. But yes, you're right. When you're when you're fighting over the facts, you are in a position in which there's more of a kind of breakdown in. Because right? there's something um, aggressive about that case. Like The conservatives went out and grabbed that case. It was not um, an obvious one necessarily to choose. But they've done that on other fronts as well. I mean, we're about to have this decision in West Virginia versus EPA about right. an Obama policy for regulating carbon emissions that never went into effect. Normally, wouldn't, that would not meet the court's standards for, um, having a, for, for reviewing a case.
0: So let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have hurled your lunch against the wall after getting bad news and you are self-soothing with whiskey, what will you be chattering about, Emily?
2: So I'm really genuinely torn about the decision that um, the club that owns Wimbledon Made not to allow Russian and Belarusian players to play in the tournament this year. It uh, means that on the in the men's draw, the number one in the world and the number eight can't play. There are other people further down the roster in the women's draw. It's Sabalenka, who I think is number six, and some other people. And it's really. Um, making, obviously, this individual paying-the-price decision for the war in Ukraine Um, that is a decision, obviously, of the Russian and Belarusian governments. And uh, so it's controversial enough that the major tennis organizations took away the points that Wimbledon normally provides to people to rise in the rankings, um, making Wimbledon an exhibition tournament this year. And I I just don't know what I think. I mean, on the one hand, I just feel like it seems like scapegoating the players for the sins of their countries, and that troubles me. And on the other hand, I feel like I understand um, why—and this was, I think, backed up by the British government. There was this sense of really needing to draw a line and saying that— in the same way that you would punish a team. I don't have any problem with the... Punishing a team is
0: totally different. Punishing a team is absolutely different. Teams represent nations. If you were the Russian World Cup team, the team that would play in the FIFA World Cup, should not be allowed to play because it represents the nation of Russia. There should not be a Russian Olympic team in the Olympics should the Olympics decide. This rises to it. But individuals are different
2: well, they do play they do not under rep- their flag, but though. that's
0: but they don't play under their flag. That's a that's a kind of anomaly. Like they, the tournament decides to put people's flag next to them, they should could put like a cat emoji or something. Like there's I no don't think people so. are not playing. When you go to Wimbledon, you're playing. Because you're playing for yourself, you are not. When you win, you your your prize does not go to Russia.
2: It's true, but there is just something. I don't know. Maybe it's because I always watch on TV, and the flag is. But right that's next stupid. To that's so dumb. It's stupid. I'm always interested in what country they come from, I and mean, there is. But it's not
0: relevant to anything. The
2: international. Flavor. I am not
0: watching tennis with you two.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think David watches any tennis. No. I. And the other thing is that it's... You. Yeah. Yeah, I i mean, I think that I agree with you, but I'm just not completely sure.
0: I'm going to take my chatter next because I know that John's got a doozy teed up. So my chatter comes courtesy of my brother, John Plotz, uh, who the other day sent me an article from Lithub by someone named Emily Temple about famous authors who died on the same day. And it led him and then me down rabbit holes of weird death coincidences. So there are all these weird death coincidences, and I want to share some of them. So I'm going to start small. This with,
2: is a little ghoulish. Proceed.
0: We just, this, it's in, 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 uh, it's really in rhythm with the episode this week.
2: It's true. It's a
0: grim, it's been a grim week. <laughs> it's true. Um, so I'm going to start small, which is that, uh, on July 30th, 2007, Ingmar Bergman and Michelangelo, Michelangelo Antonioni, both major, major film directors, both died on July 30th, 20, 2007. Okay. On February 19th, 2016, Harper Lee and Umberto Eco both died. That is a bad day. On January 27th, 2010, Howard Zinn and J.D. Salinger both died. On January 30th, 1948, Gandhi and Orville Wright both died. That seems, now we're getting somewhere. And then...
2: Wait, Orville Wright is one of the Wright brothers?
0: One of the Wright brothers, yeah. And then on June 25th, 2009, Michael Jackson and Farrah Fawcett both died. So, okay, now we're going to get real. Now we're getting three incredible days. So on November 22nd, 1963, you may recall that John F. Kennedy died, C.S. Lewis died, Aldous Huxley all died on November 22nd, 1963. Next, here's a doozy. April 23rd, 1616, William Shakespeare and... Cervantes, the author of Don Quixote, both died. Wow. Uh, And then, finally, on July 4th, 1826, the 50th (laughs) anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, both Thomas Jefferson and John Adams died on that day. So which, we'll have another vote, which of these is the worst day? Is it going to be?
2: Shakespeare.
0: So there's the John Kennedy will be number one, Shakespeare and Cervantes, number two, and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, number three. So, was it November 22nd, 1963? Yeah. Was it April 23rd, 1616, Shakespeare? Hilarious, Or was it July 4th, 1826?
1: Wait. but worst day, does worst day mean you like the people who died on that day or it was a day whose life was cut short? Because all the other people had lived long, fruitful lives. Kennedy, although, you could, if you don't like Kennedy, you might, you know. But do you see what I'm saying?
2: Yes.
0: Alright,
1: fine. Years, not, years
2: of life chopped off. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, there was not much years of life chopped off for Adams and Jefferson. No. Alright, so it sounds like Shakespeare and Cervantes won. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow your mind. So Shakespeare and Cervantes both died on April 23rd 1616, but they didn't die on the same day because Spain and England were on different calendars at the time. So, Spain had already adopted the Georgian calendar and England was still on the Julian calendar.
2: Like, you cheated them. Like, that was fraud.
0: It was fraud. It was fraud. It was was chatter fraud.
2: And
1: weirdly, so did Elvis die that day.
0: (laughs) John, what's your chatter?
2: Top that.
1: Well, I just hope uh, I get the generosity of the crowd. Okay, so mine requires a, that I have to check my notes to be historically accurate. Okay, so as many of you know, the uh, election of 18, of 1932 was very, very contentious. FDR versus Hoover, it was like two trains colliding. And it was that contentious election that Mrs. Kenneth Myers, on August 28, 1932, went to see in Des Moines, Iowa. She went to see these two, it was her honeymoon. These two trains collide, except unfortunately for Miss Kenneth Myers, it was not a metaphorical collision. On that day, a 225,000 pound train labeled Roosevelt and a train of equal weight labeled Hoover were pointed at each other for the sole purpose of smashing them together.
2: Wait, these are real trains?
1: Real trains. And it worked. According to a local account, the boiler on the Hoover blew up, hurtling out metal for yards while the cab for the Roosevelt was crushed like an eggshell. The problem is the same almost happened to poor Mrs. Myers, who was brained by some of the flying debris and had to be sent to the hospital for repair. But for the 39,999 other spectators on the muddy Iowa fairgrounds, they were thrilled because, ladies and gentlemen, in that period of America... America's mania for crashes was not limited to the stock market crash of 1929, but it spread also to this spectacle of train crashes. For the wonderment, glee, and fibrillation of the nervous system of spectators throughout the U.S., promoters destroyed trains for large audiences. They laid down a mile of track, purchased two huge hulking Iron Masters, choked them full of coal, opened the throttle, and ran them into each other. And journalists loved the fact that there were all these puns available. So they talked about all the people who joined around for these smashings, and and they would say things like, it was a smashing success, and they all had a good day. So the Iowa mashup that um, Mrs. Myers went to was staged by a guy named Joe Connolly, who did more than 70 of these wrecks at um, fairgrounds across the country. Blew up 146 locomotives between 1896 and 1932. His nickname, Head-On Joe. Connolly explained that there was a simple thirst in the American human consciousness, and he said, I believe that somewhere in the makeup of every normal person, there lurks the suppressed desire to smash things up. So as he got better at this, he strapped dynamite to the front of the locomotives and filled the freight cars with gasoline and hot coals, so that when the trains would smash into each other, they would blow up. The way this gig worked was they would have engineers get on, open the throttle, and then they would dive out. Oh but what Connolly, his innovation was, he put dummies on the train so that people would think that the engineers hadn't gotten off. And, and that that would add to the excitement. And the tra- Now the trains in Iowa, most of them didn't have political names on them, except for the first one. The first time anybody thought this was a good idea in Ohio, one train was labeled protection and the other was labeled free trade. <laughs> so, but they never actually, those two trains didn't run into each other because the guy who was running that gig said, you know, this is people are so excited to see this, they're lining up right on the tracks. And since these are going to be massive, hulking, twisted metals of explosions, probably not a good idea. That person was not in Crush, Texas in 1896. Crush, Texas does not exist anymore. It was a town built entirely to blow up trains.
2: And so they called it Crush.
1: So they called it Crush, but not because of that. No. Stay with me, dear reader. Um, the crash was staged in Crush, Texas to promote the local train line, which is a kind of a funny thing to do because presumably you don't want your train to crash. But nevertheless, um, it was called the Crash at Crush. And Crush um, uh, was not named because of two trains running into each other. It was named after William George Crush, he put this thing on. Now, that was, that was his stage name. His given name was William George Make Trains Smash Into Each Other. <laughs> it's a Dutch name. Um, 40,000 people showed up for this. And to support this, he built a whole damn town. He put in plumbing. He set up a circus tent where people could hang out in the four different restaurants. He built a jail and had 200 constables what? because people... Then he set the trains at each other. Local account reported it this way. There was a swift instance of silence, and then, as if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously, and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel, varying in size from a postage stamp to half a driving wheel. A Civil War veteran who was there, who had been at the Battle of Gettysburg, said that this was more terrifying. (laughs) Now, the reason it was additionally terrifying is that two people died, and the photographer who was there, and you could see pictures of this... Got a bolt through his eye. Yeah. The guy who ran this, Crush, was promptly fired by the train company he was trying to gin up business for. Except the next day they found out everybody loved it. It was such a big deal. He was rehired. The next day, and the photographer was giving 10000 bucks and free train tickets for life. I'm not kidding. Alas, the Depression ended, and this particular form of American entertainment went away. So now, for pointless crashes and mayhem promoted by hucksters that steal our attention and sometimes injure us, you just have to settle for politics. Um.
0: That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth and tonight by Julie Deppenbrock. Our researcher, researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Huge thanks to Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. We're organizing this also to Taylor White and Katie Rayford at Slate. Thanks to Sixth and I and Jackie Leventhal. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for coming and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So we have uh, great questions from you. I think for reasons, covid reasons, there are no microphones anymore. So we've just got the questions that were submitted. We've picked a few out. Um, all right, I'll pick one, and then let's, we'll round robin a little bit. Do you think Biden will run again? If he doesn't, is Harris a lock for the nomination? That's you. No and no. No,
2: he won't run, and no, Harris is not a lock.
0: No, he won't run.
2: Wow. John Dickerson, wait, I feel like wait, it's news what? that you think that. I Can't mean, what do I hard? know?
1: It's 2022. We got know, a long you, way to go.
2: But you, like, took a... a uh,
1: whoa. Mark. Whoa. I don't know. I just... I, I, that's what I'm feeling at this moment. Ask me in 10 minutes, I'll have a totally different answer. Wow. Do you think he's going to run?
2: I sort of thought that, like, who... That even... I mean, he... Yeah. I, I kind of thought that they were... the The... I'm really not finishing <laughs> Wow!
0: The I can't that think a of a the nice words
1: never happened.
2: Say this. He, David,
1: you wanted the, the show to be quick, so I gave you a.
2: Quick, I kind of thought that the Democratic Party was stuck with him. He is the president. It's going to be very – I also don't think Harris is a lock if he doesn't run, so then it's going to be divisive. And so I figured that he'll just run. The but question was not what
1: not. would be good for the party. I was just – uh,
0: anyway. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole – conversation go to slate.com gabfest plus to become a member today
3: Judy was boring hello then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com
4: it's my little escape
3: now Judy's the life of the party
4: oh baby mama's bringing home the bacon
3: whoa take it easy Judy the Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumpaCasino.com. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. are prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C.,